0: Please stand for the reading of the gospel. Our gospel reading this morning is from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which begins with these Beatitudes from Matthew chapter 5. When Jesus saw the crowds, He went up the mountain, and after He sat down, His disciples came to Him. Then He began to speak and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for the righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven." And blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the gospel of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. As Pastor Laura mentioned, today is All Saints Day, and we welcome those of you who are with us today. It's uh, to those who have bid farewell to a loved one since last All Saints Day, it's no doubt one of the hardest things that we do, whether that memory is recent um, or even if it's in the distant past. It's hard, isn't it, to uh, bid farewell to those we love Well, in the midst of our grief today, what I'd like to talk about is how grief is indeed surrounded by God's grace. And to do that, I'd like for us to look at this classic All Saints text from Revelation chapter 7. It's a text that inspired over the years saints like St. Augustine and Martin Luther, Bonhoeffer, Martin Luther, uh, Joan of Arc, Doris Day, Soren Kierkegaard, and everyday saints as well. I hope it will encourage and motivate you, Revelation chapter 7. Now, as many of you know, Revelation is a little bit weird, right? It's a little bit awkward at times. It's a confusing wonderful book of the Bible that uses more visual imagery than, I don't know, a modern day science fiction movie, it seems. John is the writer, and he talks about a series of visions that he's received of lightning flashes and demons and creatures surrounding a throne, seven scrolls, beasts with wings, dragons, angels, plagues, the fall of Babylon, the new Jerusalem. It's all pointing to a dramatic encounter, uh, a dramatic battle between good and evil between Christ and the power of Satan. Now, chapter 6 of Revelation outlines all of the calamity that has been unleashed upon the world. Now, it's important to know, by the way, um, that Revelation is interpreted in lots and lots of different ways. Over the centuries, it's been interpreted in so many different ways. So just one brief warning that if you run across someone who tries to convince you or tell you that they have the one way, the only way to interpret Revelation, I would discourage you from listening too carefully because there are lots of ways to dive into, to peer into, to look carefully at this particular text. Some would say that the calamity that is unleashed in chapter 6, we did not read chapter 6, we read from chapter 7, but right prior to chapter 7, that the calamity that is unleashed, some believe, is the calamity that is to come in some future time. I believe that it's the hardship and struggle that we have faced throughout history, um, and continue to face, even now, calamity, hardship like global war, famine, death, sickness, pestilence, earthquakes, and natural disasters of all kinds, ripping apart anything and everything. Why? To pull us away from our Creator and to try desperately to convince us that there is no hope. Terrific conflict that results in untold chaos and darkness. The point is that the devil has unleashed everything, everything that he's got in an attempt to defeat the power of God. He wants to overwhelm us and to overwhelm all of creation to convince us that all is lost, and again, that there is no hope, no hope for the world. Um, And sure enough, by the end of chapter 6, it seems like that. I mean, it seems like there is absolutely nothing left, no hope, all is lost. And it's at that point, at the very end of chapter 6, it's at that point that all the kings of the world and the generals, the rich and the power, but also the slave and the free, everyone is hiding in caves. They're begging, if you can imagine the scene, they're hiding in caves, begging for the mountains to fall upon them because they can't bear to think about what is hap- would happen next. So just imagine a mental picture of that very scene. Everyone in the world cowering in cave, caves, desperate and afraid. Then the very last words of this sixth chapter are these. Uh, who then, in the midst of all of this, who is able to stand? The day of wrath has come. Who can survive? Who could ever stand? You can't imagine a more desperate scene, right? Now, I know that we have problems in this world and I would never want to certainly don't want to minimize those problems a pandemic that's caused the loss for many of of jobs of life as we once knew it cancellation of of funerals some of your funerals you or your loved ones' funerals this summer because we weren't able to host uh, gatherings in of one kind or another worry about the funeral uh, of the future we couldn't even worship together for many many, many months, and in many respects even now. Crazy times, aren't they? No doubt. But all of that pales in comparison to what is described here in chapter 6. The sixth chapter of Revelation presents the direst of situations. Nothing could be worse The situation could not be more desperate. All the leaders of the world cowering in a a cave, screaming out, who can stand? Take my life now. Now, after all of that big, long setup, right, the next chapter, in fact, the next several chapters, but specifically today, chapter 7, in this next chapter, John writes this, this beautiful scene. After all of this, He writes, after all of this, I looked up, and there was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, and they were all standing before the throne and before the Lamb, robed in white with palm branches in their hands, and each of them crying out in a loud voice, each of them singing their praises to God. What I love about this scene is that despite the fact that evil is everywhere, uh, that these faithful folks are singing, they're singing their praises to God with loud voices for all of the world to see and to hear. Before COVID… Do you remember that? Like, I don't know, years ago it seems. Before COVID, I was at the YMCA when we were allowed to go to the YMCA and and we never even had uh, any… it was impossible to predict what was going to face us in the months to come. But I was in the YMCA on a treadmill, probably not socially distant, right? Didn't even know what that meant. Next to me was an elderly woman with some pretty severe orthopedic problems. She was walking laboriously, but she was doing her part. She was walking on the treadmill next to me. She had earphones on, and I'm, I'm not really sure she even noticed that I had shown up. You know how that happens sometimes? You get lost in your own world. Maybe you're listening to a podcast or to some music, music that you just really love. You get just totally lost in your own world. And five or six minutes later, I start to hear some singing and it was this woman this woman was singing next to me and the singing her singing get getting louder and louder and louder she was singing gospel music that was obviously playing in her in her earphones and, and I don't I'm pretty sure I know that she had no clue that I was there or that anyone else was listening or could even hear her singing but I could also not just hear it I could feel it I could feel her enthusiasm as she sang that gospel music I wanted to sing along and I probably should have because, after all, Christians sing. Right? I mean, throughout Scripture and throughout history, they sing. They sing in the desert. They sing in the night. They sing in prison. They sing in the storm. And that's the point. The, 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 the songs that we sing are a response to evil, which is awesome because suddenly it doesn't matter how much evil the devil throws our way in in this life in the form of hardship or sickness or death or of grief or even of a pandemic. No matter what it is, it's ultimately exposed as weak and pathetic when compared to the sheer power and grace of God. And sure enough, in chapter 8, the final seal, that's how all of this is sort of mapped out. The final seal is, is opened up. At the seventh seal, and in it we read this, when the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence, sheer silence, and all of heaven for about a half an hour. Well, at least one might think. Because what we actually discover is that silence is really not silence at all, but it's songs that have been turned into prayers, uh, the prayers of the faithful throughout history, saints of old who who have prayed for you, the prayers of the grandmother who wanted nothing more than for you to learn to love the Lord, the prayers of your of your neighbor who saw that boy beat you up when you were a kid, the prayers of your friends who worried about you when you came to work with a bruise. On your cheek, the prayers of the faithful, don't you see, surrounding all the evil of this world, the hardship of this world, the the challenges that Satan can throw before us and at us is the victorious presence of Christ and the prayers, the songs, the compassion of the faithful. You might ask, and it's a worthy question, you might ask, but why? Why? Why does God allow it all to exist in the first place? Why does God allow this evil, this hardship, in the first place? And that's… I think we have to ultimately conclude that that's not necessarily the point of Revelation. Evil exists. We might not like it, but sickness exists. Death exists like it or not. And the Bible does not try to explain it away. Instead, it puts it in its context that all sin and all death, that all evil is surrounded, ultimately surrounded and enveloped by God's grace. One more small point. Who is this, whenever we read in in chapter 7, this multitude? There's a great multitude that's surrounding the throne. Who is this multitude is a question that I would like to ask. It would be easy to say that they are the saints, right? But not so fast. Because if you look at 14, we didn't read that today yet, but if you look at 14, it says that these are they who have come out of the great Ordeal, And they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb, which is interesting, isn't it? I mean, we don't know what that great ordeal is. We don't know at all, but it must have been terrifying and challenging, and, and, and here's the important part. How did they respond? Well, they, they came out of, out of it not with bloody noses, but with robes that are washed white by the blood of the Lamb. By something that they had done? Absolutely not. It was Jesus who did it all, the robes washed by the blood of the Lamb. Jesus who had won victory for them. What does that mean? It means that the same thing is true for you and for me. It means that we are not to fear hardship and death and grief. As hard as it may be, we are not to fear it, but to know that death has already been conquered. The battle is not to be won. The battle has already been won, which means that death does not have the final word. Instead, it is a gateway to eternal life. In the mid-1800s, my dad's great-great-grandfather buried six of his children because of typhoid fever. Imagine. And then his wife he buried at the age of 36. Several years ago, we uncovered their family graveyard in Oakboro, North Carolina. It was, it was an abandoned lot marked by crumbling tombstones. His wife, Jane, and next to her were six small markers, each engraved with the name of the child and how old they were. Four months Eighteen months, two and a half years, six, seven, eight years of age. It was chilling. It was brutal. This man knew tragedy and death in a way that I cannot even imagine. But he was not defeated. Interestingly enough, despite the tragedy, he became a Baptist minister (laughs) and. Eastern North Carolina, he established at least two churches, Prospect Baptist and Pleasant Grove Baptist Churches, both thriving congregations to this day. Here's the point. In the midst of darkness, in the midst of death, and what seems like bitter defeat, we keep singing. With as much confidence and hope that we can muster, the faithful keep singing. A sick man turned to his doctor as he was preparing to leave the examination room, and he said to him, "'Doc, Doc, I'm afraid to die. Tell me what lies on the other side.' And the doctor very quietly said this, "'I don't know.'" The man was a bit agitated by that response. "'You don't know. You're a Christian man. You're supposed to know. Surely you know what's on the other side.'" The doctor was holding the handle of the door, and in the other room you could hear very clearly the sound of scratching and whining. It became more and more persistent, so he opened the door, and all of a sudden a dog rushed in, sprang into the room, jumped up onto onto the doctor, so happy to see him. You could almost see a a smile on that dog's face. The doctor turned to his patient and said, you know, I've never brought my dog to work before, (laughs) and he's certainly never been in this examination room. He didn't know what was on the other side of that door. He knew nothing except that I was here. He knew nothing except that his master was on the other side. And when the door opened, he ran in without fear. I don't know precisely what's on the other side of death or tragedy or despair, the doctor said. But I do know one thing. I know that my master is there and that is enough. May it be enough for you too. Amen.